Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. I'm Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change and really excited to have you here for another terrific blogcast. Um, we're privileged to be able to present you with a blogcast I think you're going to find both fun and informative. Uh, it's about organizing. And specifically, I talked with three frontline AFSCME volunteer member organizers about the union's volunteer member organizer program. And we also uh, invited uh, AFSCME's organizing director, Mike Sukal, who joined us and, uh, uh, and was a big part of the conversation. Uh, so the volunteer member organizer concept is really very simple. AFSCME engages its current members in helping to organize uh, or retain or recruit new members to the union. Now, a lot of unions do a version of this. I was particularly struck by AFSCME's approach because it is such an organized, structured strategy, and they actually bring their volunteer member organizers together to plan how they're going to proceed. Um, so our guests today are Mike Sukal, who's the organizing director and field services director for AFSCME. Patricia Wright is a mental health technician in Nevada, and she is a frontline leader who has worked with not just AFSCME, but with other unions to secure collective bargaining rights for state employees uh, in her state uh, back in 19, uh, 2019. She's also helped organize several workplaces, and her union just got its second contract with the state. Uh, joining Patricia and Mike, uh, Adam Rizzo, who's the president of AFSCME's Local 397. He works at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, but 397 represents the Philadelphia Museum, uh, the Penn Museum, and also the Please Touch Museum. He's been a museum educator for about eight years and a union leader for a shorter period of time than that. He'll talk about that. And then Yolanda Irizarry, uh, a police communications technician and a member of AFSCME's local 1549. She's working with her local to expand their efforts uh, to organize. So I think you're in for a terrific discussion. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But I have two pieces of business that I want to conduct with you before we get to the conversation. Uh, first, we love to have you watching the blogcasts here on the Power at Work blog, if that's what you're doing right now. But we want you to know that you can take us with you anywhere you go. You can listen to or download the Power at Work blogcast in podcast form on any of the commercial podcast providers, Spotify, Google, Apple. They're all available there. Um, so you can take this blogcast with you, particularly if you're going in the car, for goodness sakes, don't put video on in your car, right? Listen to the blogcast instead in podcast form. I want to encourage you to do that. A lot of people have started to do that in much larger numbers, and we're really excited about it. It's just another way for you to access the content on the Power at Work blog. That was the first piece of business. The second piece of business is that, oh my goodness, has there been a lot of labor news lately, a tremendous amount going on uh, relating to workers and worker power and unions, which is our bread and butter here at the Power at Work blog. I just want to give you the quick headlines and a few words of analysis because there's so much going on and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, let me just say you can keep up to date with all the labor news 
by subscribing to the blog and uh, getting the weekly download, which collects a couple of dozen articles, studies, opinion pieces, videos, other things on the web about workers, worker power, and unions. So if you subscribe to the blog, you'll get the weekly download in your inbox every week. You can also access it directly on the blog. So let me do a little labor news here to supplement uh, the weekly download. I'm recording this on the morning of Tuesday, October 3rd. So there may have been some news breaking even since the recording and when we're publishing this. But let's, let's start with the first news story, and that is that the UAW strike is continuing uh, and expanding. Last Friday, September 29th, the UAW added additional uh, Ford and General Motors facilities to the strike. There are now 25,000 UAW members out on strike out of a total uh, group of 150,000 at uh, the three uh, big three automakers. Let me say Stellantis was spared an expansion of the strike. Because in the last, according to the UAW, in the last few minutes before President Sean Fain was going to announce the expansion of the strike, Stellantis made some meaningful concessions at the collective bargaining table. And that's what the union is doing. They're whipsawing the big three to get them to make concessions at the bargaining table. And it is seemingly working. Um, nothing like a deadline to spur action. Uh, we're beginning, I would say we're beginning to hear about meaningful progress being made uh, at the bargaining table, uh, there's some tough language being spoken in public between the parties, but at the bargaining table, they do seem to be making meaningful progress. I don't want to say that an agreement is close or that it's imminent, but I would say that an agreement is in sight, at least with one of the big three. Uh, and I'm not ready to, to say, yeah, the signatures are going to start drying any day now, uh, but an agreement I think is possible reasonably soon. I want to qualify soon with the word reasonably, which is just a softener. I think of it that way. Second news story, the Writers Guild strike has ended, but the actors are still out on strike. SAG-AFTRA still out on strike. So Hollywood is still largely shut down, except for those shows that don't need actors, so like the, 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 the uh, late night uh, television shows. But the good news is that that uh, the studios and SAG-AFTRA have begun negotiating again, and the Writers Guild contract helped to provide a framework for some of the challenging issues uh, in the SAG-AFTRA negotiations. Not all of them, and there's a lot of other issues that need to be addressed, but uh, that's progress that they're, they're finally negotiating. Third news story, the membership of the Culinary Workers Union and the Bartenders Union in Las Vegas overwhelmingly voted to authorize their leadership to call a strike. They are both affiliates of Unite Here, an immensely important and powerful union in Nevada. Um, now, that doesn't mean there'll be a strike against the casino hotels, but it definitely shows that the unions feel very strongly that they are not getting the kinds of uh, 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 offers from the casino hotels uh, at the bargaining table that they need. So stay tuned to that. Fourth news story, the coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions appears ready to take 75,000 of its members out on strike this week against Kaiser Permanente. Uh, that's that strike, uh, if it happens and it's looking increasingly likely, uh, will probably begin Wednesday morning, October 4th. Uh, I'm recording this on October 3rd, so it'll be tomorrow. By the time you see this, it'll be yesterday, so you'll know if there's a strike. That strike is going to shut down our slow operations in Kaiser's facilities in 
California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Virginia, Washington, D.C. Um, and this may only be a short strike, a three-day strike, but it may not be the end of the conflict between those uh, two parties. Uh, they don't appear to be close to a contract. So again, stay tuned on that one. And let me just say the four stories that I just talked about should really beg the question, why are we having so many strikes? Man, we're having a lot of strikes. And strike activity is up significantly in 2023 by a number of different measures. Why is that happening? Well, I plan to write something on that topic on the blog. So keep an eye on the Power at Work blog uh, for that piece that I'm, I'm hoping to write in the next couple of days and get out maybe over the weekend. Um, or better yet, rather than watching the blog, subscribe to the blog, and then we'll keep you updated on all the new content as it comes out. This final story, I'll admit, is, is rather personal for me. Uh, the graduate student workers at Cornell University, which is my alma mater, uh, will vote to whether or not they want to be represented by the UE. They filed for an election last week. Actually, Cornell University filed for an election uh, last week. The students may have also filed. Um, this means that they will uh, finally, after eight years of organizing, have a choice about whether they want to be represented. Uh, let me say the UE has a tremendous amount of experience organizing on campus, and so I'm confident that the graduate student workers will vote to get a union. Um, UE is not the only one organizing on campus. The UAW is, SEIU, AFT, others organizing on college and university campuses. But let me say I'm proud to see that my alma mater is going to join the list of institutions at which graduate student workers will have union representation. But there's a lot more to say on that topic. I've written about it uh, in the past, but I also want to uh, let you know that we're going to organize a blogcast on this topic with a couple of leading higher education collective bargaining experts and maybe a representative of one of the unions. We're hoping to record that soon and maybe get it out to you end of October, beginning of November. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Subscribe to the blog so we can keep you updated about all the content that we're offering, including that blogcast, which is coming in a few weeks. So those are the two pieces of business I wanted to conduct with you uh, before you hear this blogcast. It's a great one. I know you're going to really enjoy it. So here's AFSCME's Volunteer Member Organizer Program. Enjoy. So let me start by thanking all of you for being here today. We, we uh, at the Power at Work blog, we love talking to the big time national labor leaders and to government officials. But what we really love is talking to rank and filers, frontline workers who are doing the work of worker power and worker organizing. Uh, we love local leaders as well who are dealing directly with members and helping to organize members. So we're so happy and excited to have all of you with us today to talk about organizing, which is another of our favorite topics here at the Power at Work blog. So let's jump right into it. Mike, uh, I'm going to start with you. So I read about AFSCME's volunteer member organizing program um, while reading the AFSCME blog. And I, I want to acknowledge that that suggests that maybe I'm a little too much of a labor geek and I need to find other things in my life. But I was reading the Ask Me blog. I read, a, I read about this, uh, 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 this program that you have. And you've been an organizer for a very long time. So you know as well as anybody that uh, it's not novel to have 
workers organizing other workers or to have members talking either to other members or to prospective members. Um, but uh, my sense from reading about it is that AFSCME's volunteer member organizing program is a little bit different. So if you would, tell us, tell us about the history of the volunteer member organizing program and tell us how it started, why did it start, and how it's evolved over time. Uh, thank you, Seth, and thank you for having us. Um, the <clears throat> volunteer member organizing program uh, really dates back to when I started uh, with AFSCME uh, some 20 uh, years ago. And the idea really was that, uh, as, you, as you alluded to, that the best messengers um, uh, to unorganized workers are members themselves who have experienced um, uh, changes in their workplace, have fought for change for themselves and their family and their community. And, um, and in particular, members who have been through organizing campaigns, who have seen uh, an anti-union campaign um, and can share that experience and really can share and help unorganized workers overcome the sense of um, futility and uh, the threats that come with an organizing campaign in this country um, by sharing their, their victories. Um, I think what uh, has changed over the years is that we took that program um, from our external organizing. And when we were under attack uh, at the Supreme Court with um, uh, first the Harris Quinn decision, next the Friedrichs uh, uh, case, and finally Janus, which created, uh, which created um, open shop in the public sector and the uh, and outlawed fair share uh, provisions and contracts, um, we really had to get to uh, a model where with internal organizing, we were treating it as external organizing. So we had to really uh, make sure every member of the union, a potential member of the union, even in represented settings were connected to the union and felt a connection to the union. That talk about talk if you would. I want to I want to I want to get you to just go a little deeper on the difference between external organizing and internal organizing for people who aren't familiar with those phrases. Sure. Uh, when I say internal organizing, I'm talking about um, organizing within already represented workplaces with uh, with bargaining units, um, really strengthening our locals and strengthening the um, uh, the the worker organization in those environments, so they can, so they so more members are connected and fighting for uh, better conditions and a stronger contract. Ultimately, um, when I say uh, external organizing, I'm talking about um, uh, unorganized workers who are coming together to uh, to build the union, to gain recognition, and just gain the uh, the the basic right to sit down and have a voice and, and bargain with their uh, with their employer. So. Um, so we really, you know, we, from the time I came to ask me that member, the member focus on external organizing, new organizing was there, but we really knew that in order to uh, remain strong and, um, and survive those attacks to the Supreme Court, that we had to uh, uh, build that kind of program internally as well. So we did that um, back in 2014, President Saunders brought members together, was the Harris Quinn uh, Supreme Court case, which uh, was sort of the first threat to uh, to fair share and, and to the attempt to create uh, open shops in, in the public sector. 
And, you know, it really, he started a program that really was about getting back to the basics. So in the spring of 2014, between the initial launch of this and um, our convention in uh, Chicago in 2014, members went out and talked to uh, and signed up 92,500 non-members wow. who were fee payers. The, the, the program was called 50,000 Stronger. The goal was to get to 50,000, but uh, it was so successful that we got to over 92,000. Mm. And that led to what we called Ask Me Strong, which was you know really digging in beyond just that sign up to non-members. And that, I mean, the truth is, Many of those folks thought they were members anyway. They, the, you know, their their fees were coming out of their check. So it was a good initial conversation, which built towards a deeper discussion about um, uh, about strengthening the union, uh, which was Ask Me Strong. So we um, focused more on leadership and mobilization. And um, and having said all that, when Janice the Janice decision came from the Supreme Court uh, in 2018, Ask Me held strong. We held over 90% membership. Um, uh, and refocused our resources. There was a there was a um, a, uh, a a focus on prioritizing that internal organizing, understanding what was coming. But we refocused externally. Um, so since then, um, over seventy thousand workers have joined, uh, have won collective bargaining recognition with AFSCME uh, across the country. So we really uh, have re you know, return the ship. We're looking at uh, we're looking at external organizing, understanding that we could have the strongest um, the strongest over one million uh, member union internally, but we're we're not getting stronger if we don't give the opportunity to join us to unorganized workers across the country. And um, how many volunteer member organizers do you have in that program right now? So right now there are about. Um, about six to seven hundred trained uh, members across the country. Um, the the event that that um, uh, that caught your eye was a a summit, an organizing summit in Denver. Right now, um, Colorado County workers are organizing with our union. They just won the right to collective bargaining across the across the state of Colorado at their legislature. Um, so uh, about two hundred members came together there, uh, one wow. to share best practices and to uh, learn from one another, uh, but also they went out and knocked on doors of those county employees and, uh, and really jump-started and energized the, the, um, uh, the organizing there. And you have, you, know, you have three folks here with us today who have been uh, critical to organizing uh, their workplaces, both internally and externally. Great. Um, oh, I'm going to uh, turn to them. I'm going to turn to them right now. I'll take the I'll take the hint and turn to them right now. And I'm going to start with my my. Uh, uh, she doesn't know that we have this in common, but my fellow New Yorker Yolanda. Uh, so Yolanda is the newest volunteer member organizer we have on our panel today. So let me just ask the most basic question: What made you want to participate in organizing and in this volunteer member organizing program? Um, I wanted to hear other members' issues and concerns at the workplace. And by doing that, I was able to relate with many of them. And uh, so tell us about what that looked like. And, and I want to I set it up. I want to set this question up in this way. Uh, you know, as, as New Yorkers, we know that, you know, New York is a union state, mm -hmm. right? I mean, for goodness sakes, AFSCME has one district council 
in the city that's got 140,000 members and CSEA, the AFSCME affiliate that's in, uh, it's not really literally the rest of the state, but a lot of it has something like 250,000 members. I mean, New York is a union state. So the cynics would say, Yolanda, mm -hmm. that yeah, it's really easy to organize in no. New York state, right? Everybody's pro-union in New York state. Help, first of all, explain why that's not right, because you're shaking your head. And then talk a little bit about what what the process that you've gone through is to get folks organized either into a new union or into your current local. Um, well, to start with, I've been part of the local for 19 years. Um, I'm a New York City 911 dispatcher. And one thing that I have problems with at work with a lot of my members at work is they feel like the union is not backing them. They're not listening to them. They're not hearing them. And one thing I tell them is, you know, for the union to understand what's going on in your workplace, you need to be involved. You need to vocalize. You need to be your own advocate. And the only way to do that is to jump in and get involved and go into these meetings and participate in the rallies and be one as, a, as one group, one union. And let me just say, people are shocked at home right now hearing that New Yorkers need encouragement to speak up for themselves. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about that. So when you say that to folks, what's the response? I mean, because there's, you know, there's a lot of members who do complain about their unions. They don't mm -hmm. feel like they're getting the support that they need. They don't know what the union is giving them, getting for them. They sort of take the collective bargaining agreement almost for granted. So what are they saying back to you when you're advocating for them to get engaged? Well, they they want change. They definitely want change. And they say, well, I need change. This, something has to happen with this, you know, with, with the workflow. And they're willing to participate. A lot of them, what we have been doing with my executive board is we have been getting members to fill out the recommitment forms. We have about 85% of my members that, signed up and actually wants to become shop stewards. They want to be active. So that's like the first step. Yeah, that's it's got to be a good sign that you have folks who want to stay because the shop stewards are the one who are dealing with, they're dealing with the real problems in the moment with the right. frontline managers and supervisors. Um, so so Pat, I uh, let me let me turn to you. I have a particularly warm place in my heart for mental health workers because I'm married to one. Um, so let's, I want to talk about, uh, how your work as a mental health technician, uh, has translated to your work as a volunteer organizer. You're not, you're not supposed to be your coworkers therapist, but, but, but you're sort of uniquely positioned as somebody who's, who's skilled in communicating with folks, uh, in dealing with organizing. So so what inspired you to get involved in the organizing and, and how does your professional training fit in? Uh, thank you, Seth. Um, organizing um, came easy because after you're a mental health technician for so many years, everything else is easy, right? Because mental health is very difficult. and um, But it's rewarding. It's rewarding. A patient come in when they come in in the current state that they're in. It's, you know, and then when they leave after medication and treatment, they're normal again, right? Everything is fine. Um, organizing, I've been a member with the union for many years, but I never did get involved. 
we had a shop steward who was there. He never really told us, you know, what he's doing and stuff. Everything was just, you know. But then when you start seeing the injustices on, on the job from the, the state, it's almost like the state, um, you know, they just set out to, to make people unhappy, make people uncomfortable and stuff like that. So people start complaining, complaining. Most of the issues are safety. Safety, um, me, myself, I've had two meniscus um, surgery. I've been punch spit, you know, mm. I've had a concussion and, you know, so somebody mm. had to stand up at that point. So then I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And during organizing and stuff like that, I asked a, a few people on the job, hey, you guys need to, when they come to me with problems, I say, hey, you need to come to the union. You need to help organize. You need to bring the issues. And, oh, no, Miss Pat, we're good. You're going to do it. So mm. I was kind of like pushed in there. I, I've always considered myself a strong person, but some people think that um, I am aggressive. So that aggressiveness has worked in organizing, you know, so I go to someone and I said, hey, how's the job going? Oh, let me tell you this, that, that, and the other. And they start telling me. And I said, are you a member? They said, I think so. And I said, well, let's find out if you're a member. They said, well, how would I find out? Sign this card. There's the card right here. And so they signed the card. Some of them are already members. Some of them are not. So you listen to the issues and then you try to get them involved. But a lot of people in mental health don't want to get involved. A lot of people have children. A lot of people. I just ha happen to have a lot of time on my hands. Mm -hmm. So that, that's how I got involved. Right. So let's I, I, I want to stick with you, Pat, because I want to talk a little bit about Nevada, because yes. uh, it's only been four years. Uh, tell me if I've got this wrong, but. Uh, it's only been four years that state employees in Nevada have had collective bargaining rights. That was a change that was brought by the new governor in the legislature. And so yes. all of a sudden, workers who had no way of getting a union, all of a sudden were able to get a union. They had to organize. How did that change things for you and other workers who are employed by the state? That's a game changer because now the state has to listen to us. We have a mm. voice. We have a seat at the table. We sit down and we can negotiate our wages. We can negotiate safety. We can negotiate vacations. We can, they hear us. Um, are they giving us, uh, we, for instance, we sit down, we negotiate a contract, uh, the contract is in place. It's a binding legal document. And they still define the contract. They still do something different. So this is when I stand up and I said, no, no, we, we are not doing this. We must follow the contract. But sometimes when the contract works for them, they quote the contract. So I am there all the time to quote the contract. And it is a constant Fight. I am telling you, said I have never had to fight as much as I have to do now on the job. And I'm loving this fight. Mm. Yep. How, how much did you have, uh, uh, Pat, how much did you have to explain to your coworkers about 
what it means to have a union in the workplace. And let me just say, this is a this is a big problem in the private sector because we have, you know, fewer than seven percent of American workers in the private sector who are organized. In the public sector, it's five or six times that number. But there are a lot of workers, including Nevada state employees, who have not had a union before, yes. and they're they're really not familiar with it. So how how much of it is you know, unlike in New York, for example, where most everybody either has been in a union or knows somebody who's in a union, or they certainly hear about unions all the time on the local news, or they read about them in the newspaper. How hard was it to explain to people what a union is, how it works, and what their role in the union is? Um, before this new contract, we just signed a new contract July 1st, right? Went into effect. Before the contract, it was very hard because state employees are underpaid in, in here in Nevada. So it was very hard to organize, get new people to join the union and stuff. So it, the talk was long and it was exhausting. And like I tell Mike all the time, that rejection, I just don't handle rejection very well. <laughs> but um, I keep going back and I keep going back and I stare with them and I said, if you don't join the union, you are accepting what management is offering you. You're telling mm. management this is okay. Management don't see the numbers going up and they'll be like, oh, it's just a handful of them in the union. You know, we can continue to. So I would use those kind of tactics to, to convince people to join the union, right? And at first... It was hard, very hard, because we were getting the first contract gave us 3% raise. So they were not impressed. But after we got this new contract, this new contract is 13% for certified um, units and 12% for uncertified units, and along with some other perks in there. And I'm telling you, I don't have to do much talking these days because those percentages has since kicked in. Um, people are running to me to find out, am I in the union? And I'm saying, are you? <laughs> and um, the management, the management is calling me and they're saying, hey, what are we getting next year? And I said, did you join? So I'm having a good time right now. Right now, I'm I'll really bet. having a I'll, good time. <laughs> there's nothing, nothing succeeds like success. Yes. Nothing succeeds like success. Yes. Um, uh, I, I, um, uh, let me turn to, uh, uh, to Adam. Um, Adam, uh, we were lucky here at the Power at Work blog because just last week, we did a blog cast with your union siblings at UAW Local 2110. Uh, based out of New York City, but also in Boston, and they've organized in some other places who are and they are organizing in the museum sector right now. Um, and over the last five, so we learned a good bit from them and they were very helpful in explaining to to us and to our, our, our audience about why it is that museum workers are organizing. So I want to talk with you about that, but I, I, I want to note and tell me if this has been true for you as well. It seems like over the last five years or so, that there has been a lot of organizing activity in cultural institutions, including and in most particularly in, in unions, even though those museums and other cultural institutions have been around for decades and decades. As, as I understand it, you, you work at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Of course, you know that. That was for the audience. <laughs> um, but 
The, the Philadelphia Museum of Art had its beginnings in the late 1870s. So these are not new institutions. And you've organized at several different museums um, with a lot of different kinds of workers. Help us to understand why museum workers are organizing now and how you talk to them about getting into the union after all these years. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why museums up until only very recently have not been organizing on, on the scale that we see today is because they're uh, the way they're structured, um, the folks who work in these institutions are often um, taking jobs with low pay um, because they can. Um, uh, they're coming from, you know, pretty privileged backgrounds, um, which is why, like, our staff is often very homogenous, um, predominantly white, you know, have higher education degrees. Um, and I think that um, historically we've been kind of like museum workers have been told like, um, you know, we don't do this for the money. There's like prestige associated with the work and that's part of it. There's cultural capital, you're providing a public service. I'm a museum educator. So I definitely <laughs> bought into that idea uh, for a long time, but we never like really talked internally about what it was like to work in these spaces. Um, and that all changed very quickly. Um, in 2019, I believe, there was a, a viral spreadsheet that read or went around that maybe um, uh, the folks from UAW talked about. Um, but it basically asked folks in cultural workers um, in, in museums specifically to share information about their compensation and benefits um, anonymously on an open source spreadsheet. And that went hugely viral. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever talked with any of my coworkers about pay, about benefits. Like, <laughs> these are all things I had never, I had been told it was like inappropriate to talk about. Um, and so I think unlearning those things is part of the, the battle. Um, mm. And I think we're getting to the point also at these institutions where they're structured in such a way that, you know, the executives are making anywhere from $700,000 a year to like, in some cases in yeah. New York at some institutions, like $2 million a year. Whereas, yeah. you know, yeah, actually, the, the New York Times just ran a story yep. about compensation of CEOs yep. or, or presidents or whatever the top position is in museums. And it was it was eye popping. I mean, yep. it was it was almost all in the seven figure range. Now, a lot of those folks were New York based yep. museums. And you have to believe that New York is paying more than, say, Omaha is paying. No offense to Omaha. Wonderful city. <laughs> but, but you know, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, it's got to be a lot higher. And it was, it actually gave me the opportunity. I tweeted that article out and then I gave a link to our blogcast about museum workers and said, hey, here's how you can hear about how the other workers in the museum are doing because <laughs> it's nothing like what the CEOs are earning. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you're absolutely right. The, the, the wage disparity is just, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, the folks who are working on the ground who, you know, see those inflated numbers for executive salaries and then turn around and see their paycheck and they're living paycheck to paycheck, trying to survive in big cities like LA, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, can't pay their bills, right, uh, often have advanced degrees that are required by the position that they're in. Um, so they have student loan debt as well. Um, I think we're all kind of coming to this moment of like, this is just 
not sustainable anymore. And so that that those are the conversations I started having with my coworkers way back in 2019, um, and continue to have because you know I think what Pat and Yolanda and Mike were all saying is absolutely true. Like you know, I'm very new to this. Like I've never been in a union before. Um, I started organizing the museum in 2019. Um, We only, you know, we were uh, kind of negotiating a contract for two years, more than two years. Mm -hmm. We we went on strike for three weeks to finally resolve the contract. And we ratified our contract in October of last year. And like Pat said, just because you have a contract doesn't mean things are going to just all of a sudden be smooth sailing and that management is going to like respect what's in the contract you have to keep the pressure on you have to keep people involved and organized and people need to know their rights in the workplace um so that they can advocate for themselves so that's like we're doing a lot of like contract 101 sessions for folks and keeping people informed and all of this while also organizing at other institutions throughout philadelphia so there's a lot of work that needs to be done and it's 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 fun work i would say like you know like you get you get worked up, you get a little angry, um, you know, you're fighting for for people. Um, and as an educator, I think that's like, that's part of what I do just as an educator, mm-hmm. right? Like it's people-centered, like I'm advocating for other people. Um, and I think that translates a lot to the work that I've done in organizing. So, um, well, so, so I want to, I, I want to dig down on your comment about the fact that you have not been in a union before, and and that's probably true for the large majority of your your coworkers. Yeah. So, take us inside the conversations that you had with your coworkers and with the people that you're organizing in other institutions about the benefits of organizing, but also there are substantial risks associated with organizing. In fact, I've I've often said that. Trying to organize a union in America is one of the riskiest things that a worker can do. Now, that may be a little less true in museums, although I'm not so sure. Uh, I've heard about some pretty rabidly anti-union campaigns in the museum sector. But how do, how do you have that conversation with people who don't know a lot about unions and you're saying to them, hey, we're going we're gonna to fight the boss here. We're going to put pressure on the boss here. And you've got to trust one another. Uh, but we're going to all benefit from this. What does that conversation sound like? What does it look like? Uh, great question. I mean, it's it always starts. Thank with you. The... By the way, thank you for the praise of the question. Oh yeah, it's, of course. Uh, my it's pleasure. Not my first podcast. <laughs> nice of you to say. Nice of you to say. Uh, no, I would just say that um, you know I think all of those conversations start with the basic organizing conversation, like you know what are how how is work for you like what is what is going on in your workplace what are things you like to see change what would you know make work better what what are some challenges you're facing but beyond that it was a lot of education and it was us educating ourselves also because we were all new to like unions um we were organizing uh, for more than a year before we even affiliated with DC 47 and AFSCME um, here in Philadelphia. So we were learning on the job and we were learning from other institutions. Um, So like we had folks come from UAW um, down to Philly to talk to us at one point. Um, We were talking to, eventually we hooked up with uh, AFSCME here in Philadelphia. Um, We were talking to labor lawyers who donated their time to us to come talk to us about like, you know, some of the risks of organizing and how important it was to stay um, uh, under the radar while we were in that process. So, um, you know, I think it, 
it, it was incumbent upon ourselves to educate ourselves. And I think because we did that, because we are a relatively new kind of unit, unit um, and a, a very new local, um, like there are so many people who are involved who um, were so invested in the early organizing that that has continued into kind of what we're doing now. Um, so we have super high engagement from our members, which is really, really wonderful. Um, but also like the conversations we were having were um, really centered on management's kind of failure to manage here at the museum. Um, and, you know, they, there would have been high profile cases around sexual harassment in the museum that mm. we all lived through. Um, mm. Our, you know, there was, there was a kind of a physical harassment that was happening as well. Um, not to mention the, the kind of depressed wages, the bad healthcare, mm. the fact that we had no um, uh, paid parental leave whatsoever. That was another thing we won in our contract. We got four weeks next contract I'm hoping for eight um, but um, you know like there were so many issues and rampant mismanagement um, and so um, you know it was easy to get people on board because of that um, because of the failures of management they say management is the best organizer and I, I couldn't agree more um, because it, it, they were kind of helping us throughout the process because of the way they were mismanaging the museum even before we went public once we went public and they started the anti-union campaign which was so by the books and by the numbers we knew everything that was coming because um, they hired morgan lewis and bacchius uh, to represent them throughout the negotiations um you know they just everything they did to fight us got people more fired up and more involved um, what was let me ask you this what was the final vote what percentage did you win with uh 89 Wow. 89%. That's, that's very impressive. And it's consistent with the numbers we've heard from the UAW and other unions organizing in the museum space. You guys did a fantastic job uh, with that organizing. Um, so I want to turn to, uh, I want to turn to another uh, issue. And uh, Can I Yolanda... jump in before you move? Oh, please, please go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I just wanted to underscore a point you made. I mean, I think um, at AFSCME, it's been uh, incredible experiencing the Cultural Workers United um, campaign and movement. And I should add that this has been, you know, workers in 14 states and 41 institutions that about 6,000 has about 6,000 workers have, uh, have organized with AFSCME since, uh, since this all started. And it really started in struggle. It started a little before the pandemic um, uh, at a place called the Marciano Arts Foundation mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. They, these are the Marciano brothers of Yes Jeans uh, fame. You may know of them. Um, they had a museum in L.A. and the workers organized with AFSCME and they shut that museum down instead of uh, bargaining. Yeah. At wow. the same time, the Los Angeles Museum of uh, Contemporary Arts workers were organizing and they had a moment, you know, a moment where they sat down and decided we are going to see this through. We fought, uh, you know, we fought uh, the Marcianos and one unfair labor practice for what's that sort of they shut the museum down. Um, but the MOCA workers um, stood up and won card check from uh, from their museum. And that, you know, I think the fact that we uh, grabbed that fight with Marciano, we went on Black Friday 2018 across the country and used the reach of AFSCME. And um, uh, I think we protested at uh, about 300 guest stores across the country. Mm. And it just sent a message, I believe, and hopefully Adam will confirm that, you know, AFSCME is going to support um, cultural workers. And then we set up a national 
network and a national campaign, the Cultural Workers United, which you asked me how things have changed earlier. I think this is an important point. Um, Cultural Workers United, uh, uh, really, uh, those workers use technology to come together regularly. They had a call earlier in the week where um, nearly 100 workers came together from institutions all over the, the country to share these experiences and to build their uh, to build their movement. So I think um, that's a way uh, that we're finding a way to connect member organizers and help build this uh, build this movement moving forward. Yeah, I, I, so I, I want to pick up on one particular thing that you talked about, Mike, the power of an organizing example really has proven to be a very important impetus for workers organizing. We had uh, the Starbucks experience where you, know, you had three stores organizing in Buffalo and then you ended up with a really a viral campaign. There were over 300 organized stores. Now they're having a lot of trouble getting a contract. But, you know, uh, the, our UAW friends told, talked about organizing at the New Museum in New York and how that got a lot of press. And there was a they, they've been organizing at a lot of other institutions in New York as workers sort of raised their hands up and said, I want one of those. I want a union, too. And this example with Marciano and also with Mocha, uh, uh, very, very important that organizing campaigns often don't start as national, carefully planned out efforts. You know, we're going to start here, then we're going to grow here, then we're going to go there. Often they start with one effort in one institution that attracts a lot of attention, often that is successful, but it doesn't necessarily have to be successful. And then it's an educational process for workers that they go through where they say, wait a minute, those folks are just like me. They're experiencing the same issues as me. I want to find out more about this. They're not necessarily ready to go. Well, you tell me, are, do, do you find that they, they see that example and they're ready to go or that they need to learn a little bit more about what, what the benefits are going to be, what the risks are going to be, what the costs are going to be? I mean, Adam, Adam could uh, jump in, but I, I, I think we always, you know, there are different degrees of interest um, uh, at different institutions, but um, I think there's always a, at least a general interest because folks understand they don't have a voice. If there's one thing that um, there's one thing the pandemic sort of made clear, uh, there always was a hope, I think, in unorganized workplaces that my employer will take care of me. I, you know, they may be uh, they right. may have all the power, but they're benevolent at the end of the day. But in the pandemic, we saw that that isn't true. You may have the best intention mm -hmm. frontline supervisor, but uh, someone you know has to answer to the bigger structures. And um, uh, so I think folks get that, and it is a matter of um, helping them understand the process and understand, like you said, uh, wins across the country. The the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, a preeminent institution, those workers just won their first contract. Um, the Field Museum just organized in Chicago. I mean, you go up and down, uh, uh, like I said, a number of uh, states and cities across the country. Folks are winning, and they're not just winning campaigns, they're winning contracts. So. We just have to share that. We have to keep building on it. But uh, I believe that in most institutions, we can get there if we do that work. And it leads back to why, you know, why we did the v VMO conference in uh, Denver. It's a question of scale. Um, the union can never, the labor movement can never have enough staff to uh, organize all mm. and take advantage of all the opportunities out there. It's got to be, you know, member driven and members have to uh, build this, uh, build this institution. Yeah, well, almost almost like a union, right? <laughs> Depending upon the power of the members. I'm sorry, Adam, go ahead. I would just say I, I totally agree. And I think that um, one of the um, one of the talking points by uh, the 
given by management at cultural institutions is that like, you know, unions can't work in these spaces, you know, they're not typical union jobs, like, um, and I think the truth of the matter, and, and this, I think, comes through even from sending some of our stewards to the VMO training in Denver, mm-hmm. is that like, across every industry, workers are fighting for the same respect, dignity, and, um, you know, rights that uh, no matter where you're working and to be safe in the workplace and, and to make a living wage and, and have health care. Like, these are basic needs, and, and I think they go across industries. The other thing that I would say is that when um, we were on strike for three weeks, um, we had so much support from Ask me, um, but from other unions as well, in other industries, we had folks from all over the country supporting us. Um, and it became clear to all of us, all of our members that like the world was watching. And like Mike said, that this was like a, an example that we needed to, we needed to win, not just for us, but we needed mm. to win to, to kind of show the, the, the world um, or the country, whoever was watching, um, but especially folks in leadership positions and the board of boards of trustees at museums that, that we were going to keep fighting until we got what we deserved. Um, because if we had lost that fight, it would have set a terrible example um, for the industry and all the organizing that was going around. So, so we knew we had to win and we weren't doing it just for ourselves. And I think that speaks very much to like what organizing is all about. You may be fighting for your own rights um, and benefits, but you always have to be pushing forward and fighting for other people at the same time. Yeah, uh, that's powerful, and I think very, very important. Uh, uh, Pat and Yolanda, let me let me come back to you with a very particular question. Um, many AFSCME members fit into the category of essential workers. I think I would classify both of you as essential workers. Uh, those are the frontline service providers, public service providers, with without whom we our society really wouldn't operate. If we didn't have the, if we didn't have folks to take nine one one calls and to help people who are suffering mental health crises, our society would not be able to succeed. Uh, and so that means that that those AFSCME members worked through the COVID pandemic, putting themselves at tremendous uh, risk. Um, so uh, Yolanda, let me start with you on this. Uh, how has the organizing changed? from before the pandemic, through the pandemic, until after the pandemic. Uh, I can imagine, for example, that it was very difficult to communicate with with your coworkers during the pandemic, and maybe even some of them now are working remotely or working different schedules. So tell us a little bit about how essential workers organizing and the pandemic uh, has really changed things, if it has. Um, for well, for nine one one, it hasn't really much changed. We weren't able to work remote. We actually had to come to work. Um, talking about the pandemic is very sensitive to me because I actually lost twelve of my members, twelve coworkers oh, that I actually sat so and sorry. worked with. You know, and we I we lost them. So working together in the pandemic, we was able to work with management on getting compressed tours so we was able to work 12-hour tours and have more days off and this way we was able to spend time with our family manage our family take care of one another um but we also was able to get together and do a solidarity day solidarity day 
and we were able to all wear red shirts. Management cooperated with us, and it was just basically acknowledging one another as first responders. Since we was excluded from the Heroes Day parade that New York City had, they didn't include 911. So mm -hmm. we made our own parade at work. We was able to organize, and that's how we was able to get a lot of members um, more involved and more engaged with the union. And and what what did members tell you they felt that meant to them? Because that this is a little appreciated aspect of of the role of a union, right? Most people think of union as being about dollars and cents, costs, uh, you know, uh, uh, wages, benefits, you know, grievance procedures. But but what you're describing is not what people think about. But it's really the the most common thing that you find in a union, right? Is solidarity. Right. Um. Well. They, they saw the changes. They saw that the union was more engaged with us. They was being active with us, that we was getting the executive board working with us and they was hearing us. And that's what we wanted. We wanted people to hear us, to hear what we we're going through, to hear our work issues for, to hear that, you know, we're losing members, we're losing coworkers, we're, we're, we're short staffed, we're overworked, we're underpaid. And again, we, when we had the ratification and the new um, contract, we was able to get more money. We was able to to speak up, and we we felt like we had a, we finally got that voice. Yeah, that's that's the critical word, isn't it? With a union, is yeah. voice, voice in the workplace, voice in the decision making. Pat, what about for you, uh, another essential worker? How how if at all did the organizing change from before the pandemic, through the pandemic, and now after? Um, during the pandemic for us, um, one of the essential things that we needed was masks because we were, were in a hospital. Um, we had patients coming to us with COVID. And so we had no masks. It wasn't provided. Um, employees were going out and buying masks. And as you know, they were flying off the shelves and, you know, you can hardly get it. You have to reuse the masks and all that stuff. And um, management just looked the other way. And they themselves were in their offices. They were not coming onto the floor. So we were just being isolated out there by ourselves. So um, for me, um, I, I just chose the wrong time to go on vacation. It was March 1st, 2020. And I mm. went on vacation. Um, luckily for me, I went to Trinidad and Tobago, where I am from. And um, the borders were closed, and so I could not leave. I was there for six months. And no. so employees were calling me, and they were telling me what was happening, no mask and stuff. And I called um, a young lady who was working for the International to ask me. I called her. I told her what was happening and said, I kid you not, this young lady got the whole hospital mask. Okay. Mm. She got us regular, um, some regular masks, and she also got us some masks that says "Ask Me" on it across. <laughs> and um, that's how we suck it to management. They were wearing masks that says "Ask Me," and that silenced the management. And so, um, and as a result of that, "Ask Me" gained a lot of respect because I made sure and I let the staff know how we got the, the masks. 
didn't need to explain because it said ask me but <laughs> i i had to tell them you know and this is the reason why people need to join the union and this is the 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 fight that we have to fight to get these things and from right. from that time till now you still have to keep reminding people you still have to because every time some I'm the union steward on my job every time somebody sees me hey miss pat what about so and so and i have to remind them hi how are you is everything good with your family and say oh yes miss pat i'm sorry then they reintroduce <laughs> themselves nobody wants to ask me how i'm doing they just want to tell me their problems so right. there's always problems there's always new things and i like that because when they come to me i encourage them this is how you have to join the fight this is how you have to take the fight you know to the union come there listen to the meetings bring your issues let's talk about it we are strength in numbers if if i and i explain it this way if we go back to the negotiating table with the same numbers that we have you think management is going to respect us they're not going to give us anything cuz they're going to say oh we already give they have no more numbers right so i have to explain these things sometimes people who want to drop the union you get a raise and now i don't want to pay my dues i want to drop no you can't drop because if you drop we're not going to have the luxury of getting more next time oh that's how it work yes that's how it work okay miss pat mm -hmm. well, forget about it i won't drop you know? <laughs> very good so very we have good. to educate them very people good. don't know we have to continue to so this organizing thing is no joke and i'll tell you what nobody can teach you to organize Nobody can teach you to organize it, it, it um I went out with Mike one time <laughs> went out with Mike and I made my first mistake and Mike didn't even tell me I made a mistake I knew I made a mistake and um we we talked about it and stuff wait and... wait 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 you can't you can't not tell us what the mistake is tell us what mistake you made so everybody who's watching can learn from it <laughs> What was the mistake? Or I'm going to make Mike tell us. Tell us, Pat. What was the mistake? So we went out knocking on doors, and it was just me and him. And um, he was taking the lead. He was knocking on doors. He was getting the story, and he was doing the the, the five steps of of organizing and stuff. And I don't know. We knocked on this door, and the young man came out and. I said, hi, my name is Pat Wright, and I'm with ASME, and this is Mike, and we're here to talk to you. Are you still with, I believe he was with um, NDOT or something, and I said, are you still with NDOT? And he said, yes, and I said, how is things going? And he said, oh, pretty good and stuff. And I said, well, um, are you with the union? And he said, no, and I said, um, do you want to join the union? And I proceeded to, you know, badger him about joining the union i did not give him i did not give him all the the tools that he needed to make a decision and all that i did not do the steps so he he got scared he was he was about 21 years of of age and he mm. was just nervous and he just looked agitated and he was he said well i'll think about it and stuff so we left so when we got back in the car and stuff like that mike said well how you think that went and i said I don't think it went very well. I think he looks scared. <laughs> he looks scared. <laughs> and so I um so when we got back to the briefing, 
uh, Mike said, um, you can go ahead and you can tell them what happened, how the day was and stuff. And I told on myself, I said, well, I scared this guy. <laughs> I said, I did not use this, the five step and stuff. And, and I learned my lesson from that. And so and not, not just you, everybody that you told that story to learned the lesson. Yes. And now everybody who watches this broadcast yes. <laughs> is going to learn the lesson that there's a process and you have to give the work a room in order to be able to tell you about what their needs are and what their experiences are. Yes. Thanks, Pat. That's yes. a great boy. That's a great that's a great story. OK, <laughs> last question. because You guys have to get back to your jobs and your lives and you have important things to do. But I, I, I have to ask this because I am sometimes accused of being too optimistic about the future of the labor movement, the future of unions in America. And I and I, I have to admit, it's hard to stay optimistic when there's lots and lots of bad news and you all yeah. are reading the same news that I'm reading about some name brand companies that are just blatant lawbreakers and, and, you know, horrible things being done to workers around the country being fired because they're involved in union organizing and, and worse. But, but I, I took real solace from the fact that last year in 2022, the number of union members in America rose for the first time in five years, and it rose in both the public sector and in the private sector, um, more in the private sector than in the public sector, because it's a bigger sector, but still we're seeing growth. So I am optimistic, but you, four of you, all four of you are on the front lines of organizing in America. So I wanna give each of you a chance to answer the question, are you optimistic that we're gonna continue to see increases in union membership this year and in the coming years. And if you are optimistic or if you're pessimistic, I want you to tell me briefly why that is. And I'll start with you, Adam, and then Yolanda and Pat, and then I'll, I'll let Mike give the valedictory closing <laughs> speech. So Adam, go ahead. All right, I'll try and keep it clean. I would say, hell yes, I'm optimistic. Um, the, um, you know, I think all you have to do is look at like the numbers in terms of union approval ratings in this country right now. Um, they're at their highest levels, I think, in decades. Um, I think, you know, a whole new generation of workers are are kind of discovering unions and realizing how valuable they are um, and how important they are. Um, I just show people that chart that goes around all the time where it's like, you know, income inequality is going like this as, as union membership went down over the last couple of decades. Um, and, you know, I think we, it's, it's, it's so clear to see that in order to reverse that trend, we need to really organize. Um, so I'm really optimistic. I see it in my field specifically. There, like every week, it seems like there's a new cultural institution that's announced that they're organizing um, and is, you know, filing for an election or hopefully being voluntarily recognized. Um, uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm super optimistic, and I think um, just looking at like Starbucks um, as as an example. Um, seeing these stores organize across the country, it, it's exponential. Um, and I think, um, you know, you know, I know they're struggling in their fight, um, but that's why we need to support them too. Um, because we need to like support folks in every uh, sector and industry who are organizing right now. Because um, we just need more members. That's great. That's a great answer. Okay, Yolanda, we got one hell yes. <laughs> I am with Adam. I totally agree. I am yes. Um, Although in New York, we don't. We're not polite in New York. We don't say hell. 
I got another word. We got, but I'm not going to ask you to use that word because this is a this is a PG-13 blog, Yolanda. So, okay, so I, I was born and raised in New York, so I, I, all right. I, that was very hard for me. Thank you for, thank you for keeping it PG-13. Philly, come on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, Yolanda, go ahead. Yes is your answer. Go ahead and explain yes, why. I totally agree. Um, personal experience with my my own um, job. Members are joining. They're being engaged. They see the difference once. Once everyone is engaged, they see that, you know, larger crowds speak louder. And when we speak louder, management listens and things get moving. The union gets involved and they help move. And it's, I see nothing but progress. That's, that's great. All right, Pat, we've got two, we got a hell yes. We've got a yes. We got it, you know, with all those exclamation points and asterisks and stuff, because we want to keep it clean. What's your answer? You're optimistic about union membership growth in the next few years? Yes, I am. And I am optimistic because of the NEOs that I do on my job, new employee orientation. Every time I walk into that room and I give a, a, a little speech about the union and stuff, everybody wants to sign my card. So, yes, I'm optimistic. And um, uh, one thing is uh, I have a colleague. His name is Brian Miller. He is in Reno. And um, <laughs> Brian and I, sometimes when we're together, one um, incident, um, we were in Philadelphia and we were in line trying to get a... Philly cheese cheesesteak sandwich. Cheesesteak. Cheese yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not pronouncing it right. They will kill me. And um, <laughs> and uh, some guys were across the street just drilling, the, digging up the street and whatever. And he bought them some sandwiches and he walked over there and he wanted wow. to organize them right there. And then. So <laughs> Brian wanted to organize them, ask them if they had a union and stuff. So, you know, with Brian and I, yes, we are optimistic and we are going to keep fighting. That's great. Can I just right. say, buying somebody a cheesesteak in Philly is about the best way to organize them. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with Adam about which place you should buy it from, because that's a big... I'm not getting blend. into that yet. <laughs> I'm not getting into that on this. Uh, that's, that's too controversial. Okay, so I was just thinking... How horrible would it be if the three rank and filers all said yes, and then Mike said, "No, I'm really pessimistic. This is it's a hard. The future is horrible." And okay, Mike, here's your chance. I would say, how could I not be optimistic? Seriously, working with folks like this and ask me, activists and leaders across the country, you know, it's just such a privilege. And um, uh, no, we're we are kicking butt, and we are uh, we're very excited about where we're going as a labor movement and as a union, and we. I think we all understand it's 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 difficult difficult work, but it's the most rewarding work we can do. So I'm very excited. Very often. great, and I and I appreciate all of you. Let me just say the the four of you are the reason why I am optimistic. Because as I talk to to leaders and to rank and filers and local leaders around the country, they give me reason to be optimistic because there are folks out there just like you who are working their hearts out to help workers empower themselves by coming together. And uh, boy, this has really been a terrific discussion for me. You fueled me. I hope you fueled our viewers and I really appreciate you taking the time. Great talking to all of you. Thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks for watching that the broadcast on volunteer member organizers. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Um,
you know, I've already talked to you about subscribing to the blog. You just need to go on the blog and uh, you have an opportunity. Uh, there's a pop-up also at the bottom of the homepage where you can give us your name and your email address and we'll subscribe you to the blog and send you uh, information about the content that's on the blog. But you can also connect with us on social media. We have a Power at Work page on LinkedIn, a Power at Work page on Facebook. You can find us uh, at Power at Work blog on Twitter, X, on threads. You can find us at Power at Work blog on Instagram, and it's Power at Work on TikTok. We're available in all those forums. If you follow us there, it's a great way for you to communicate with us as well, but it's also a great way for you to keep up with the content. Thanks so much for watching this blogcast. Come back often to the Power at Work blog. We look forward to seeing you on the blog again very, very soon.